Gaba gaba hey everyone, welcome to the George Sanders Show. Uh, this week we're going to be discussing two kind of contemporary or, you know, modern musicals. Uh, the first one being Rock and Roll High School, starring the Ramones and PJ Souls. Um, and the recent film Pitch Perfect, starring Anna Kendrick, um, which Sean is giddy with delight uh, that we are going to be discussing later today. Um, how are you, Sean, by the way? I, I, I haven't seen you or talked to you since I got back from uh, wherever the hell I was. Yeah, we, we just got your, your postcard today. It's of a, uh, a, a dancing John Paul Belmondo as he's about to blow himself up in Pierre Lafoe. It's, uh, Spoiler it's, alert! It's, it's good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I got you that postcard like on my fifth day of my trip, and then I held on to it in my bag for the next 12 days until I was getting on the train to leave for uh, coming back to the States, and I handed it to my girlfriend's mother and said, uh, could you do me a favor and uh, send this off? And she did. So there you go. I'm, yeah. I'm glad it got to you. Yeah, that's that that very nice. Uh, <laughs> no, it's, it's weird. We haven't, uh, we haven't been here on the, on the Skype to record the podcast in a very long time. Yeah. It, it feels like, like forever. But it's like riding a bike, you know? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll <laughs> a see. Tandem, a tandem bike. <laughs> A tandem bike where at least one person has no idea where they're going. That's right. <laughs> one person is pedaling backwards. Uh, in addition to the films that we're talking about this week, uh, we're going to be discussing uh, the career of Joe Dante, who ha uh, has a couple of credits on Rock and Roll High School. Actually, one credit and one uncredit. Um, we'll be doing some What's Mike Been Watching and uh, picking our Cinema Central modern musical and we'll explain what that is a little later in the show uh but without further ado i think we really need to just dive in here um with riff randall and uh rock out with the ramones in rock and roll high school uh cheryl do you think tom roberts is cute yeah but he's such a dork no he's not i think he's a fox a fox Tom Roberts is so boring. His brother is an only child. He's not half as hot as Joey Ramone. Who's Joey Ramone? Where have you been, Mars? Earth calling Kate. He just happens to be the lead singer of the Ramones. Boy, I wish we could see them this Thursday at their concert. So what's stopping you? We can't cut classes to stand in line for tickets. That's right. Oh, please. Ten years from now, no one will care if you've ever been to high school, much less skipped a few classes. You all ask as if everything's so important around here. I mean, just because Togar is stuck in the 50s doesn't mean there isn't life after high school, you know. I mean, I've got my own future to think about. I know I can write for the Ramones. All I've got to do is get my songs to them. They won't be in town for another year, so I've got to see them now. Hey, well, we want to go as much as you, but we can't all cut classes. Well, I guess it's up to me then. But you'll have to cover for me, Kate. I'm going to take a three-day leave from Camp Lombardi and be first in line. If anyone wants to join me at Front Row Center, why, well, you just let me know. Okay. All right. Okay, that was a clip from Rock and Roll High School. PJ Souls there um, explaining her crush on Joey Ramone, the least likely rock and roll crush of all time. Um, Not the least the likely. Well, I'm going to... Okay, what's the least likely? Joey Ramone... Uh, Rick Ocasek is, and Paulina Poroskova. Yeah. I don't know. I think you're giving points to Joey Ramone because his hair's in his eyes most of the time. But that dude 
is ugly. Um, and I'm going to get into to some theories I've got about making him less ugly in a second here. But okay. uh, rest in peace, Joey Ramon, by the way. I, I'm, a, I'm a huge Ramones fan. And that's one of the reasons I love Rock and Roll High School. I'm just going to come out and say it. Uh, the film is from 1979. Um, it takes place um, at a high school. And PJ Souls um, plays Riff Randall, who's like the uber... Ramones fan she just loves them you know uh, she's talking about them all the time always listening to them and she's a delinquent or at least she is in the eyes of the administration at the school who think that she's trying to incite riots and um, she's a bad element or whatever and so um, anyway the 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 movie is about her kind of you know going her own way and school trying to you know tamp her down and uh, the Ramones come to town and she can't go to the concert and then she can go to the concert and, and then the Ramones play and it's awesome. So I don't really need to explain the plot of Rock and Roll High School. I don't think. Um, it's it's pretty straightforward. It's a, it's, a, it's a movie that celebrates rebellion and the transformative power of rock and roll. Uh, that, is, that is true. It's uh, it's it's a it's a punk rock high school movie, like right? In in, a- in every sense of the word, like like in in plot and in character, it is it is utterly generic. But in the in the same way that the Ramones take you know generic fifties and early sixties pre British invasion pop songs and make them unique by playing them fast and loud, Rock and Roll High School takes the the tropes of of the youth movies of the previous generation and plays them completely insane. Right. This, and this movie is deliriously, deliciously insane. Uh, <laughs> and I, all the little, the little things that crop up in this movie, and I'm sure we'll get to some of it. Um, but you know, the, <laughs> there's a giant, you know, anthropomorphized mouse um, that, you know, goes to the concert and has these giant, you know, headphones um, rocking out. Um, his mother shows up later. There's all these little little touches and these kind of surreal elements to the movie that make it a whole lot of fun. Um, and there's, it's also there's Clint Howard as the school uh, love guru, whose <laughs> office is in the the smoke filled men's restroom, where he has an office and a secretary. Yes, and I okay. I'm gonna get to my theory now because I know everybody's just dying to hear what my theory is. My theory is is that they put Clint Howard in this movie to make Joey Ramone look better. Cause, and I love and Don't get me wrong. Clint Howard, great guy, I'm sure. But that dude is also equally, I mean, that guy is tough to look at. Um, but I think... Well, it's also, is, you know, Clint Howard, of course, is the, is the brother of Ron Howard, who was in the 70s famous for, as the star of Happy Days, which is another kind of nostalgic look at, at 50s culture. So well, and it's forebear. Um, rock and rock and, yeah, rock and roll high school is the the Clint Howard to to <laughs> American Graffiti's Ron Howard. That's right. That's absolutely true. I, I was actually thinking about that uh, throughout this movie, um, and I think this is uh, you know. <laughs> and this is and I Clint mean that Howard as a compliment. I I, 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 I prefer Clint to to Ron. <laughs> I do too. I, I I mean I would be happy if I saw that you know on on the DVD cover or whatever. I would I would you know get it in a heartbeat. Um, I, I think Clint Howard is fantastic here. I think everybody's great here, um, particularly PJ Souls, who I think was robbed at the Oscars that year. I don't know who won, but Riff Randall is such an iconic role, and 
Um, she just commits a hundred percent to this, and and I think she's just absolutely magnetic um, from the beginning to the end of this movie. I think she's just phenomenal. Well, it's it's a great character name. It's great, Riff Randall. I mean, you know, I think there's a band that you know called themselves the Riff Randalls after that, you know, which is really annoying. But um, there are great names throughout this movie. I think uh, I think her 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 best friend, um, the the nerdy nuclear physicist girl uh, Kate Kate Rambo Kate Rambo uh, <laughs> played by D Young is is just as interesting a character as Riff Randall like uh, if if I was in rock and roll high school I would want to be friends with Riff Randall but I would want to date Kate Rambo Oh totally Riff Randall you can't contain Riff Randall like you know yeah. that's just not going to happen I to- absolutely um, she she's she's a force of nature but she's not like a like the girl you want to go to prom with. Well, I think that's I think that's totally um, intentional. Like Kate Rambo's character is supposed to be that kind of you know in for us as an audience to kind of get into the wavelength of, of um, Riff Randall and her lifestyle, as it were. Um, a few of the other names I just want to rattle off. So other the names that I liked in the movie, uh, there's uh, Riff Randall's um, rival. Angel Dust, uh, and then there are the two hall monitors who are both first names are Fritz, uh, Fritz Hansel and Fritz Gretel, um, which I think is really funny. Um, and of course, Clint Howard plays Eagle Bauer. Um, so it's it's just a great it's just a great rogues gallery you've got going on in this movie. And you have, uh, I think, I think there is one slight problem with Rock and Roll High School. Like like, oh, no. like you, I love this movie. Uh, this was the first time I, I saw it, but I I. Uh, Really want to watch it again soon. Yeah. Uh, uh, Vincent Van Patten as mm-hmm. the uh, the the straight man of the film. Yeah. He's he's ostensibly the male lead, Tom Roberts, uh, yeah. who is the captain of the football team, and he's a straight A student, and he's got a crush on on Riff Randall, but he has like a complete inability to talk to girls, which is like the main. You know the the movie is kind of divided in in three parts. Like one third of it is is Riff's adventures as she tries to get to the Ramones concerts. Uh, one third of it is the Ramones in concert, and and one third of it is Vincent Van Patten uh, seeking romantic advice when from Clint Howard <laughs> from Clint Howard when you know uh, uh, Kate is has a crush on him and riff couldn't be the least bit interested in him but yet he's got a a a crush on riff which i don't really understand because kate so wait so your pro so your problem isn't with his character or his performance it's your problem is with the the story itself where he's not interested in kate but he's into riff well it's just it's not a very interesting story (laughs) Yeah, I, well, it's it's definitely the weakest of if you break it up into thirds like that. Um, I think it's got really good stuff in it. Um, I, I I really like the Clint Howard tutorials. <laughs> yeah, the, like the the scene where uh, like he, uh, uh, Kate goes to see Clint Howard as well for like the opposite romantic advice, and he gets like the two to role play dating, and she thinks it's real, and he thinks that he's practicing for riff. You know, that's all fun stuff. And then and then they make the the van. The van which, is awesome. Which is neat. <laughs> but like the repeated jokes of him asking, you know, about the weather and, and how it might be rain in, in Idaho is just kind of bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think that's part for the course of this movie. I mean, sure. This movie is bizarre. And um, I, I like the conception of the character because he's like the the bland 
male lead in a musical that right. that all of all great musicals all great underground musicals at least have a bland uh male lead like you can go back to like the gang's all here or you know a night at the opera or something there's always just like a terrible uh dude in the middle of it he's the zeppo of of the film the alan jones yeah, uh, yeah. no I, yeah yeah he's definitely the the weakest link of uh in in this but i think that's small potatoes um, yeah, yeah. Because every other element of this movie is just is just fantastic, um, and <laughs> the the script is hilarious. There's some really funny lines. You know, Riff says something. Um, he's so boring that his brother is. She talks about him, and she says, his, "He's so boring. His brother um, is an only child, or something like that." Yeah. Um, there's these little you know lines like that that are great. Um, and then, and all those surreal elements that come into play, like I mentioned the mouse, um, and there's just a whole bunch of great stuff here. Yeah. The, uh, the, the, the nemesis in the film as, as in most of your, your high school or, or college film is a, is a principal who's a, a hardliner and she's played by, uh, Mary Warrenov as just kind of this, this ultra fascist nurse ratchet type who is convinced that, uh, that rock and roll will will make mice explode and is thus bad <laughs> for for children. <laughs> and I really like and I really like her performance. She's re- like she yeah. she really holds it like through the whole movie. Like she really has to carry that. Um, and I like the dynamic that is is in play with not just her and the other teachers um where you know she's trying to get the teachers on her side and the teachers are like you know what's the big deal really well, well um, paul, paul bartell as the the music teacher uh keeps saying how insane she is but everyone just keeps going along with, right, with what she's doing what she's doing um and then I also like the uh the uh recurring joke of of one of her lackeys uh, I think it's uh Hansel I think um who's who's infatuated with her and he keeps writing these things about he he wants to you know get in her pants basically and yeah. and those <laughs> and they keep coming up at the worst possible time so um yeah this this was a this is a a kind of a late Roger Corman film kind of like the last uh last uh, uh great period of of corman's producing when when you have uh, paul bartell who did uh death race 2000 and joe dante gives a, a co-screenwriting credit and joseph mcbride uh co-wrote the screenplay and you get a, you have a lot of uh of corman regulars like like dick miller uh dick miller he, he sneaks in there yeah, has a, a a small role as the the police chief so it's it's just this great kind of ultra low budget ultra ultra just don't care about stuff like continuity or or coherent plotting or you know realistic acting and just go for for fun and entertainment and and exploitation and and i love it yeah it captures it yeah um (laughs) and i think i think i think that's really really in 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 fitting with with the Ramones and with this kind of uh, a punk era in general. Oh, definitely, absolutely. Um, I, I think that um, this this really, you know, a lot of times you see these movies or something that tries to, to capture a certain, you know, the zeitgeist or whatever um, that get the details wrong, or they or it just doesn't, you know, it doesn't 
transfer over into that other format. And this movie gets it right. Like everything it does, it gets it right. It's got, it's infectious. It's got that, you know, you're tap, you can't help but tap your feet to the, you know, as, as the movie's going, the soundtrack, um, you know, besides the Ramones, you know, um, is fantastic. There's Devo's on there. Brian Eno's on there. Alice Cooper's on there. Um, um, Paul it's McCartney. A, it's a really, <laughs> the, the original punk. Um, <laughs> I, I really like how Eno's music is used for all the, the villains. Like, um, it's always this, like, ambient song that comes on that, um, <laughs> you know, the villains are, like, getting into their... Um, sidecar and they're about to like go to the rock concert it's this like Eno ambient track which is a really odd choice but it fits and um, it's it, you know it's it's really nice to hear that um so yeah every element it, i think um captures that punk rock you know 1979 vibe to it um yeah and and, and, and you know it it's it's hard to talk about something like 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 punk in a in a global sense because there's lots of different strains to it and it's a you know it's a complicated uh, it's a style of movement it's also an attitude it's a genre it's not really a, a you know a, a philosophy of life necessarily but it it seems to to capture the Ramones in particular their strain of of, oh, yeah. of punk rock music which uh, unlike say like the the Clash or or some other more more stridently political uh, and worse. Bands. <laughs> well, <laughs> take that clash. <laughs> take that. <laughs> uh, is is much more about uh, kind of recapturing a, a pre-British invasion uh, form of music and and you know reinvigorating it, and uh, it's it's much more in dialogue with the 1950s than it is a music of the moment which is really interesting to me. Oh yeah, the Ramones they they are separate from from kind of everybody else and and what's so interesting is that um when they that they harken back to the 50s and just look at them, you know, they're wearing leather jackets and they're wearing jeans, you know, like they, it's besides the fact that they're all ripped jeans, you know, they could just be greasers in in a 50s thing. Yeah, um, and they have long hair. And they have long hair, but other than that, it's it's you know, I mean, they cover so many you know, like, as we will hear later in the show, um, classic you know, early rock and roll songs. Um, but what's so interesting about the Ramones too is that they had that idea, and that's what they did for twenty some years. Like like the Ramones, the Ramones never progressed as a band. Like they. <laughs> You know, they did things where they, you know, they were hooked up with Phil Spector, you know, and which, it, there which, you go. It, you know, of course. It's exactly, yeah. Um, no other, you know, who else is going to do that from the punk scene? Um, but that, but it's so great that the, the Ramones were kind of holding that torch um, for that era of simpler and, and, and just, you know, straightforward um, ideals in rock and roll. Um, well, it's also, it's also, up. you know, an, an expression of, of a lot of, of kind of uh, retro nostalgia that was going on in, in the 1970s. Like we already talked about American Graffiti, which came out, I think, the year before the Ramones became a band in 74. Uh, American Graffiti came out in 73. Sure. Uh, but then, you know, the year before Rock and Roll High School, you have, you have Grease mm -hmm. and you have Animal House. Both of which are 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 set in that in that fifties early sixties era as a an expression of the youth culture of the nineteen seventies, 
through the lens of, right. of kids who grew up in, in the 50s and the 60s and kind of, you know, subverting the, the kind of dominant mythology of the 50s while at the same time celebrating it. Right. Absolutely. Um, you know, because, you know, you hear you hear like a Ramon song like, you know, now I want to sniff some glue. And you're like, oh, this is, you know, <laughs> degenerate music. But then you actually listen to the song and it's and it's there's it's 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 closer to rock around the clock than it is to, you know, whatever Yes album or something came out in, you know, 78 or something like that. Um, yeah. And, and, it's, and it's and it's so weird, though, that that Rock and Roll High School could very well have not been a Ramones movie. Like it, it wasn't conceived that way. It was origi- It was like uh, uh, it, um, there was a version of it where it was like a disco movie. It was disco high. And then right. there was there was uh, another version. Uh, Todd Rundgren actually turned down the part. And then they considered a number of other bands. They considered Cheap Trick. They considered Devo. Uh, they decided that Devo already had you know their own concept. So right. <laughs> they wouldn't really mesh. <laughs> Which yeah. is which is true. Like, can you imagine Devo High School? I would fucking pay good money for that. But uh, I would. How about Todd Rundgren? How about Todd Rundgren High School? <laughs> no, but yeah, your point is, is I understand. I take your point. It's absolutely true. This this movie had to be the Ramones. I mean, yeah, it's it's, just, it's it's very serendipitous that it that it turned out that way. I don't think we'd talk be talking about this movie now if it was Todd Rundgren. Absolutely. Absolutely not. We wouldn't be talking about it if it was Devo. I don't think. You know, uh, I really, I really think this is like a perfect marriage of concept um, and artist. You know, um, coming together. Um, even though the, the Ramones, uh, to a man, cannot act. <laughs> they're they're so. they're so hilariously bad. Apparently, <laughs> D, apparently, Dee Dee was so bad that they cut out all but two of his lines, and which is like, I, I want pizza. <laughs> Yeah, apparently they did 30 takes of D.D. Ramon saying pizza because he could not do it right. And D.D. Ramon is my favorite Ramon in this movie because um, you can see him trying to like play to the backing track and he can't do it. Like there, for some reason, he cannot like, play to the backing track. And um, he's always looking to Joey like, should I, should I do my background vocals now? And I think it's just the most adorable thing in the world. So I love uh, uh, I love when they take Joey backstage and and supposedly they they've learned that Joey only eats pizza, right? That's like part of <laughs> part of his myth. And there's actually like a, a rumor that the band was paid in pizza for this, right? Uh, <laughs> Which but, Roger Corman, I mean, you know, it's possible. Yeah. Uh, but they they take him backstage and and he wants to eat pizza, but his manager is like forcing wheat germ down his mouth <laughs> <laughs> and sprouts. <laughs> Yeah, I actually got to say, Joey Ramone's presence in this movie is really great because he, he's the only one that actually has to do anything, and it's very minimal. You know, he has to do that. He has to do the announcement from the stage um, that Riff Randall's is their biggest fan. Um, and then he also has to do the scene where Riff Randall, and this is, might be my favorite scene in the movie, where Riff Randall smokes a joint and puts on a Ramones record and then kind of hallucinates or daydreams that the band is playing in her bedroom. And... Um, and Joey has to play to her, you know, yeah. and he's great. It's really awesome. Like he's first, he's sitting in a chair across the room and he's doing this kind of snide, you know, finger pointing kind of thing. And then he gets up and he's a gawky, you know, he was well over six feet tall, skinny as a rail, um, totally not a leading man type. But, you know, he and PJ Souls have this thing on the bed where he's singing down towards her. And it's just perfect. It's just perfect. 
Yeah, and you can't imagine Rico Kasich doing that. No, no, no. that'd be a horror movie. Yeah, um, and and like the the Ramones are the main draw for this movie. Like like I said, it's it's a full third of the running time is then is them performing. Is their concert, yeah, and and it's. It's amazing, and the songs are are so fast and they're so quick. They they do like seven songs in the set that that takes only like fifteen minutes. Yeah, it's ridiculous. And yeah. at, at one point, they actually have like the lyrics popping on screen, which I do not understand why they did that. But it's neat. so awesome, though. <laughs> neat. I mean, why 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 do it for the one song? Was it uh, teenage, uh, teenage lobotomy? lobotomy? Yeah, I don't know why that one in particular got the uh, <laughs> the follow the bouncing ball treatment, but right. Sure. Well, they, they also in Pinhead they do they they spell out D U M B for dumb and then they do it again but they spell dumb wrong on the yeah. screen. <laughs> um, yeah, there's just little tricks like that throughout this movie. Um, it, it's yeah, just and like, and you 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 obviously are a big Ramones fan. You've seen this movie before. I I know very little about the Ramones. Yes. Uh, I just I just got Rocket to Russia a few months ago, and I really like that album. But as as Riff Randall points out, and this is another like I was saying, the movie gets all these elements right. Riff Randall holds up the uh, cover for Rocket to Russia, and she says in the movie, "This is their best album," and it's true. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's it's a really great album, and I, you know, not not being familiar with the band, I'm sure that there are like in jokes that I was missing. Like at one point I thought there was an in joke when, uh, one of the, uh, one of the characters, uh, one of the adults says to them, uh, uh, do your parents know you're Ramones? And I thought that was like really funny because they're all Ramones. Obviously they're related, but then, you know, I, I did a little Wikipedia research and they're not actually related. So no, they're not actually brothers. (laughs) And I had always assumed that they were. That is the depth of my Ramones ignorance, is I didn't even know that basic fact about them. <laughs> yet I still okay. yet I still really love this movie. So Yeah. Well you don't need you know, you can buy into the idea that, you know, hey, the white stripes were brother and sister, you know, as far as I'm concerned. You know, it doesn't matter. Um, but uh uh getting ready for the show today in addition to doing research on Wikipedia. Uh, I did. I did some some research on on Letterboxd, and yes. I read a lot of Letterboxd reviews of Rock and Roll High School and of Pitch Perfect. And they there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of really poor, poorly written reviews on Letterboxd out there. No. And the uh, <laughs> Sean, you're blowing my mind here. Uh, the the running theme that that connects both movies is is basically if you don't like the music or if you don't like musicals in general uh but if you don't like the music then you won't like the film and that that's an argument for both uh, against both of these movies yes okay uh and and, and do you would you agree that that would be the case with rock and roll high school like if you don't like the Absolutely. ramones if you don't like punk music would Absolutely. you would you like this movie I, I think I absolutely would. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know how you could not like this movie. Like, I, like sometimes you know you can you can argue about a movie, um, and you can see the other side. You can see why someone doesn't like it, and and you can give them that. But then there are movies that I just I I would look at someone like they're from outer space, and I think this is one of those movies where. Um, you just have to. You could. You, you don't have a soul if you don't like rock and roll high school. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you, I don't think you need to like the Ramones. Like, okay, maybe the concert scene will be a little tedious, but like 
But there's like a good 45 minutes before that, before the Ramones even show up in this thing, you know? Um, no, people are, no, no. Um, getting to Pitch Perfect. Um, well, we can talk about Pitch Perfect we'll right now when, we, when we get to Pitch Perfect. Okay. That sounds good. Um, yeah. I, what do you, do you, I mean, you, do you agree with me? I mean, I, I think that the kind of person who doesn't like the Ramones is the kind of person who would not like rock and roll high school. Namely an idiot. <laughs> uh, I, th- I think, I think you have to, you have to appreciate a certain kind of, 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 of comedy of humor, a, a certain outlook on the world in order right. to, to like this film. And I think that if, uh, and I think that that goes hand in hand with, uh, with liking what the Ramones do. And, you know, I can see, I can see not liking the film, but still finding it valuable as, as a document of its era, because I think it really does capture this moment in 1979 and this kind of spirit of, of a generation of like the late baby boom and, and early generation X and this kind of, uh, uh, kind of worn out, rebelliousness where like in post Watergate, everyone is just kind of tired and wanting to do cocaine or, you know, smoke pot and listen to records in the basement, but they still, there's still like this inherent need to rebel against some kind of authority. And by the late seventies, it just becomes, you know, dispersed into, you know, total anarchy. And I think this captures that spirit really well as, as well as any movie from the late seventies that I've seen eat pizza and blow up your school. Exactly. I mean, (laughs) what, what more could you want? Um, yeah, I think that's, I think that's very astute, Sean. Um, yeah. And, you know, and speaking of of blowing up schools, I think there, there's a film that came out, uh, like I think less than a decade later, uh, called Heathers where, where Winona Ryder and, and Christian Slater, blow up a school or plot to blow up a school. And I think that, that you see how youth has changed in the, in the intervening decade. That film was much darker and much more cynical. It's like been through the Reagan era and it is, is completely black. Whereas in, in rock and roll high school, there is still this kind of joy and, and hopefulness and, and belief that, that the kids will actually win out in the end. And that is yeah. completely absent by the end of the eighties. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in rock and roll high school, um, I cackle, I cackle like a, like a Disney villain when they blow up the school, like every explosion, I'm just like giddy. I mean, just so freaking happy because <laughs> it's, it's just, it's just, it, it's just a perfect marriage of music image. Um, it, it's just, it's just wonderful. Um, and something like Heather's, yeah, like it's 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 a lot more of a of a downer um, uh, thought and 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 way that it it plays out. They, what we should do is every generation should have its blow up the school movie. Um, unfortunately, you know, I think you know the the most recent blow up the school movie was probably Gus Van Sant's Elephant, which is a great movie, but is uh, even more of a downer. <laughs> yeah, well, I I think you know that kind of points to how the the culture has changed. Is that that yeah. that kind of thing is just not it's not funny anymore. It's it's no, you can't too, do it. It's too real. You can't do it. I know, it, and that's and that's a shame. You know. Um, because whether it's the Ramones or it's Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes blowing up that school, there's something um, 
wonder-like. There's something childlike about it um, that uh, is a beautiful thing. <laughs> On that note, let's listen to the Ramones uh, with their cover of Do You Want to Dance? Do you want Back to the show. Uh, we've got some news topics to get to, uh, some stuff that's happened in the last you know few weeks. Um, we'll start with the sad stuff first. Um, there have been a couple of deaths lately, recently. Um, the 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 most talked about one, and we're not going to spend too much time on this because it's a bummer, and because I think most people have already discussed it. But uh, Robin Williams died uh, tragically, so um, and. Uh, you know, it was it was a bit of a shock. Were you shocked, Sean, by the death of Robin Williams? I really was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I I I you know known about his uh, you know alcohol problems from from the eighties uh, right. and his like his time in rehab. But I I I think I had known that he had a, a relapse a few years ago. But hadn't really kept tabs on it. But but yeah, I I think uh, anytime somebody as as young as he is uh, dies like that, it's 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 a shock. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, it was it was it was a surprise. I mean, it was, yeah, one of those things where you know, as after it kind of dawns on you, you kind of look at all of the the signs or whatever, and you're like, well, okay, you know, it kind of makes sense. Um, doesn't mean it's okay or whatever. Um, when I think of Robin Williams, you know, there, Robin Williams, and I think a lot of people my age um, will probably say the same thing. There was a stretch of my childhood um, that was Robin Williams dominant. Um, you know, in quick succession, he did um, Aladdin. He, you know, the genie is one of his most iconic roles. He did Hook, uh, Steven Spielberg's Hook, which we've talked about on a, on a previous show, and uh, the, you know, the rose-tinted 
glasses of nostalgia and how that plays out uh, into something like Hook. Um, and Mrs. Doubtfire. I think that was like, you know, three years in a row, I think, 91, 92, 93. I think uh, I had the, the number wrong. But uh, anyway, uh, so he was a huge, huge, because <laughs> I saw, I watched those movies a bunch, you know. Um, I didn't really follow Robin Williams's work beyond that you know there are things i think my favorite film of his is the fisher king uh terry gilliam's film but you know i haven't seen a lot of the later robin williams stuff that he is kind of getting a lot of praise for now like world's greatest dad one hour photo uh, insomnia stuff like that um so i would like to check that kind of that stuff out that later period robin williams stuff where he kind of tones down the shtick um and and does these kind of interesting kind of intense roles yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a little bit older than you. I I remember him on on Mork and Mindy. It was one of the first oh my god, you're so old. <laughs> it was one of the first TV shows I remember watching, and and World According to Garp I saw when I was way too young to understand what was going on. World According to Garp and Popeye was a, a movie that I loved as a kid, and I still love. I think yeah, it, I, you know, I, I think it's probably his best film I, out of I, all of I, his I movies. I have memories of Popeye too. It, they're vaguer because it was I was a lot younger, um, and but I remember certain scenes really, really well from Popeye, and um, I remember his performance because it, it is a very interesting, um, and I can't think of anybody else that could have pulled that live action version of Popeye off. Um, well, that's that's one of the awesome. great things about Popeye is it couldn't star anybody but but Robin Williams and and Shelley Duvall. Shelley Duvall, it's true, it's absolutely true. And then um, uh, uh, Dead Poets Society was was kind of a a defining movie of of my junior high school generation. It was like everyone saw it, and and that's sure. where we we learned who Walt Whitman was. Sure. Uh, yeah, so I mean, I, Robin Williams was was like a, 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 a he was one of those constants that you just that I'd not always known who he was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used to watch uh, Comic Relief all the time. I would like videotape it off HBO. It was this big telethon that he hosted with Whoopi Goldberg and Billy Crystal, where they had uh, like every stand-up comedian in the world would do like this this eight-hour telethon to raise money for homeless people. And I used to like videotape it and then rewatch it when I was young. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I love Ron Williams. I, he, I thought he was hilarious, uh, at times. Uh, but I, I liked him much more as a dramatic actor. I don't know that there is an actor of, you know, his era, the last 30 years or so who played sad as well. Like he, yeah, you know, for for such you know that's like the essential contradiction in him. It's like for as as hilarious and unhinged and and uh, kind of scattershot as he was as a comic performer, there's just this deep well of sadness within him as a performer. When I think you know when I thought of Robin Williams when he died, um, and I didn't I haven't rewatched any of his movies or anything um, after his passing, um, but the the image that sticks in my mind is Robin Williams' smile. Like, and, I, and I don't know if, it's, if there's a specific scene in a movie, but like, it, like a, a kind of, not, not a smile of resignation, but like kind of a, a melancholy smile. There's a, and, and, yeah, it's the look on his face at the end of Dead Poets Society. 
Yeah, there's just this look, and when, he and yeah, it's when you just, see like his his student standing up on the desk, and you get the shot between between the legs, and he's you know he's sad that he has to go on, but he's so touched by that he's you know that they've done this this gesture for him. Yeah, and and, and it's a it's a real moment of genuine emotion, and uh, and uh, yeah, it's 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 wonderful stuff. Um, two brief anecdotes um about robin williams if i may indulge um i grew up in the bay area and um i was just south of san francisco and for a a long period of time when i was growing up um there was a stretch of highway 101 just south of candlestick park uh that you know you can you know um adopt a highway thing um and just south of Candlestick Park, there was a sign for several years that said, this highway, this stretch of highway is maintained by Robin Williams. <laughs> like, it said that. And, and I, I was a kid. And every time I would go by that, I would look out the window to because I was like, is Robin Williams himself really, like, picking up trash on the side of the road, you know? <laughs> or does he, like, pay people to do it or something? Um, and so th- that's that's my first memory of Robin Williams. That's the, the one that sticks in my brain is always looking out the car window on our way to a Giants game or something, um, trying to find Robin Williams picking up garbage on the side of the road. The other story I have, and this is a secondhand anecdote, um, a few of our you know acquaintances, uh, friends in Seattle are comedians. Um, they do sketch comedy and they do stand-up comedy, and, the, and they're very talented guys. Um, and... One, and, and some of them work at Scarecrow, which we'll be talking about in just a minute here. But um, they told me a story of doing a stand-up set in Seattle a few years back. Um, and Robin Williams was in town filming, I think, World's Greatest Dad. And um, he came to the show. And he just like hung out backstage with the comedians for just the whole show. And, and they just said he was incredibly generous and kind. And I think he introduced them. He would come out and like it was totally unexpected, you know, this tiny little, you know, divey club or something in, in Seattle. Um, and apparently he just stuck around for hours and he was just a really, you know, cool guy. And that's, I think that's a really cool thing to do. And I, from what I've read since his passing, that sounds like a Robin Williams thing to do. And, and it's a shame that he's gone, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, another person that died, uh, was Lauren Bacall. And, uh, you know, this, this one was less, uh, shocking, I guess, uh, you know, She's Lauren Bacall. 25 older. years older. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and stuff, but it's still, you know, it's, it's an end of an era. Um, Lauren Bacall, um, you know, will always be remembered for, you know, the work she did with her husband, Humphrey Bogart, um, in the four films they did, but she had a long, very career long after, you know, after he passed away, he died 50 years ago, you know? <laughs> um, and you know, it, it, you know, it, we should separate her from him, um, because she's done, she did so much more, um, you know, she she voiced a character in Howl's Moving Castle. <laughs> you know, less than less than ten years ago. Um, yeah, but I wouldn't what, know that because I wouldn't listen to the dubbed version. Yeah, but you know, I, I agree. <laughs> I haven't seen that one. I think Billy Crystal does the voice of the fire in that movie. But anyway, I've uh, I've, I've seen a couple of her of her later films, like her non Bogart ones. I think she did uh, a Vincent Minnelli one, uh, Designing Woman. 
that that uh -huh. is okay and she's good in that. But but really, it's it's all about the big sleep and and to have and have not for Lauren Bacall. And if those are the only two movies she'd ever made, she would still be worth talking about for a few minutes on on this podcast after she died because because that's enough. Sure. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's it's hard to you know put anything above a Howard Hawks film or, or two, <laughs> um, in, in someone's filmography. And, um, and yeah, I mean, obviously to have and have not, um, which was her first role and, and made her a huge star and, you know, she fell in love with Bogart and the rest was history. Um, and I think, uh, Big Sleep is, is a better film. Um, you know, I wouldn't say her role isn't as iconic in that. Um, but I like the other stuff that she did with Bogart, too. Um, I actually haven't seen Key Largo, but um, I did rewatch after she passed um, Dark Passage, um, which, speaking of San Francisco. Um, and I wrote this in my letterbox review. The early part of that movie where, she, where it's a POV shot from, you know, the perspective of Bogart, you just get this sense of, like... Uh, affection and uh love or something um towards Bacall and it, which is silly because it's not Bogart behind that camera but um she's such a presence and she really sells that and um you, yeah she's she's very talented and a very um magnetic presence in cinema yeah yeah so let's not talk about dead people anymore let's talk about um uh another thing that's dying though um, it was recently announced, it was announced today, I believe, that the Leonard Malton movie guide, um, which was kind of I, it was a constant in my life, and I'm sure many other people's lives, uh, will be printing its last edition this year. Um, and then it will, I think it'll continue to be like an app or something like that. But the print edition of Leonard Malton's movie guide will be no more um, fairly soon. And um, did you grow up with the Malton Guide, Sean? Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say say grow up with it because uh, they didn't have guides like that. I don't think when I was growing up. Uh, but it was a a constant presence when I was in college, mm -hmm. and I think that that the internet is is a wonderful thing. But we didn't have it when I was in college. There was no internet movie database. So my my friends and I would we we would be sitting around talking about movies and we'd say oh uh, what was that movie that that Robert De Niro was in where he uh, was with Harvey Keitel and he like blew up a mailbox and <laughs> there would be no way for us to figure out what that was because you couldn't look up Robert De Niro until we got a, a Leonard Malton movie guide and started to like go through it had we would have like an index of like actors. And you could find, oh, was it uh, was it Taxi Driver? No, it wasn't Taxi. No, it was Mean Streets. That was the one. And uh, it wasn't the Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle. No, it wasn't. Oh, damn. And so you know, now a question like that can can be solved in like ten seconds on your on your phone. Uh, but back then, we would like spend hours talking, arguing about who was in what movie and and what thing. Uh, Leonard Malton helped solve some of that, but then he also created further problems when he would uh, do things like like give Taxi Driver two stars. This, but this is the beauty of the Leonard Malton movie guide because um, as you become more sophisticated, um, 
you start to learn how to read the Leonard Maltin movie guide. Um, and, and you don't take it at face value. You don't take the four stars as, as necessarily better than something he gave a bomb rating to. Um, and as you get, you know, when I, I grew up, so in my household, uh, my stepdad um, had, I think I mentioned this before, hundreds hundreds upon hundreds of VHS tapes of, of movies he taped off of TCM and stuff. Um, and he had a Leonard Maltin movie guide. And I would go through those tapes trying to find something to watch and I would consult the movie guide. And if the description in the movie guide, regardless of the star rating, uh, sounded interesting, then I would seek it out. And, and that was my source. And I, I spent a lot of time with that Leonard Maltin movie guide flipping through there. Um, and, you know, I, I would get upset. I would, I would be like, what? Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas? A bomb? Are you kidding me? That movie's awesome. Um, <laughs> this is me uh, in the suburbs. Just picture it. No, we, we, it, we did the exact same thing. We'd go through the guide and, and find, you know, star ratings and reviews to get outraged by. And, yeah, it was, it was great fun. It was great fun. And, and, and you know... I I think I still have a Leonard Maltin movie guide somewhere in the, in the house. I have, but I haven't consulted it um, in you know a long, long time. And it is because of the internet, and you know things change and and what have you. But I would just like to commemorate that era because it was formative for I'm sure a lot of people. Um, and and it you know it's it and that experience like you were saying with you and your friends. Um, it it can't quite be replicated in this day and age, and you know yeah, that's okay. I, I mean, there are other things happen, but you know, but it was a specific thing at a specific time, and uh, it was special. Yeah, I kind of uh, uh, half was half reading Twitter today, and and I think uh, Sam Adams from from IndieWire was was talking about the Malton Guide, and and was saying that that uh, he had a really interesting thought, which which was that that the current generation without things like the Malton Guide uh, has access to more information, but uh, it, it's not as idiosyncratic. It's not as reflective of a single point of view um, that you would get with, with the Malton Guide. Now, he had like researchers and, and, and writers. It wasn't all him writing all of sure. that, but, but still, you know, there's like a distinctive personality to that that you don't get with the IMDb. What you get with IMDb and Metacritic and Rotten Tomatoes is, is consensus, which is valuable but in in many ways is is less interesting than an individual point of view and and as as a reader it's it's hard to engage with consensus you like it you feel if you disagree with consensus like if there's a movie that you think is great that the consensus thinks is terrible you feel bad or if there's a movie that the consensus says is great that you think is terrible you know is that exactly what i just said no, no, you, you're you're on the right track. Uh, um, you you know you feel like like you know the emperor has no clothes, or it leads you into these kind of terrible forms of argument. Where whereas if it's just like an individual person, you you develop this this relationship with them, and you get to see what 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 Lenny's blind spots are, and you can right. you know work around that, and you can learn to read the reviews, and and you learn a little bit about him as a person, and not just as a film critic by by his guide and there is that to some extent in the internet era like with letterbox you can follow individual people's reviews and you can get that kind of thing or you can just follow an individual critic but we seem much more consensus oriented 
now than we did then because there was no consensus because right. it wasn't it just wasn't possible. Absolutely, I, and and you're right. Uh, um, that uh, hopefully we can maintain that uh, we can we can um, strive to can, to find these idiosyncratic voices and to um, be uh, because that's how you find hidden gems and stuff, and that's how you f and, and that you know. Yeah, that's how you 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 push culture forward by right. by discovering new things and discovering weird things and you know running running somewhat against the grain right and uh, so speaking of idiosyncratic well and speaking of somebody that put out their own guide scarecrow video scarecrow video uh this is the good news we've we've segued from the deaths and the death of printing um to the good news this week um, would you like to, to set it up, Sean? Yeah, well, uh, if you listen, have listened to the show at all, you have most likely heard us talk about Scarecrow Video. It's the, uh, it's the video store in Seattle that, that I go to every week, and we use it all the time. And probably half the movies we've talked about on the show, um, at least one of us has rented from Scarecrow. Uh, they've been, uh, for the last several years, as, as you know, vid the video rental industry is dying, have had financial hard times, and then last week uh, yep. they they announced that they were going to transition from a for profit model into a non profit organization, and they launched a Kickstarter in order to to raise some money to kind of pay the operating costs as they transition into the Scarecrow project, which will be a you know kind of a a repository of, of video where you can you know you can still rent things but it won't be a, a for-profit video store model and as of today they have reached their goal which is awesome yeah about 10 hours ago they 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 hit it um, they're trying you know they're trying to get what do they call it stretch goals or whatever um, so they can do more cool stuff but yeah they successfully got you're my money. <laughs> and, and, and we definitely, you know, even though they've already reached the goal, we definitely want to encourage anyone who's listening to this if you haven't um, donated. And especially if you live in the Seattle area or you care about, you know, video stores and video store culture, uh, you definitely should give something. You should, even if it's like a dollar. Um, yeah. And this is a really wonderful thing um, for Seattle um, and for for cinema because um, the thought of Scarecrow's collection being scattered to the winds um, is a heartbreaking thought, and to think that it's it's going to live on um, in this kind of new form um, gives me hope, and 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 especially the response to this Kickstarter was just so heartwarming to see them reach this goal within a week. Um, and this wasn't small potatoes here. This was a lot of money. Um, was was so gratifying, um, and it, it, yeah, it just it just it just fills me um, with joy that um, that an institution like this is going to um, be able to to move on uh, into the future and do new cool stuff. They're going to be you know they're going to be able to do a lot more now. I think um, with this new model, and um, I think that's great. Yeah, it's really exciting. My 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 daughter is is not yet three years old, but uh, she already every week looks forward to our our trip to Scarecrow, 
and and she knows exactly how the store works she knows where to go to find the disney videos and she picks out the videos and she brings them over to me and she says she wants this one and i say we already have that one and she goes and puts it right back on the shelf and brings out another one and it's it's great she she already loves the store so <laughs> there there is a new generation of there's a new gen- at least right. at, at least two kids out there who who will continue <laughs> to use video stores into into the future <laughs> That's right. Uh, selfishly, we should mention uh, briefly, uh, at, at being a Kickstarter, there um, there were prizes or gifts um, for those that donate. And uh, you and I donated. And we, the prize that we won is, or, or whatever, is we are going to screen something down the line. Uh, it's going to be, it's, you know, I'm sure next year at some point, um, something in Scarecrow's screening room. And we don't know what that's going to be. Um, but I think we're going to tie it in with the George Sanders show, um, especially because now I just mentioned it on the show (laughs) and, uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun and, uh, that's great. Yeah. And we have, we have a lot of different ways we can go. There was, you know, the, uh, the show we were talking about last week with, uh, with Hells of Poppin. We could do Mm -hmm. that because Scarecrow has not one, but two copies of like that, the only that people that do. <laughs> film that is not in, in print and is not on uh, on the YouTube. Uh, yet they have they have it twice. Uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of things we could do. Yeah. Uh, so more more details on that when you know that'll be far in the future. Yes, far far in the future. Um, I, I should also say that I did cast uh, a line out to the Grand Illusion um, about doing a screening of Hells of Poppin'. Uh, and I haven't heard back yet, but, uh, if they get back to me, you know, I might say, screw it, I'm doing it, Scarecrow, but <laughs> whatever. So onward, upward with the show. So, yeah. Uh, speaking of, uh, places where you can go to watch things, <laughs> what's Mike watching? Uh, well, it's funny because what I'm watching this week, I'm, I'm actually, it's funny that I'm, <laughs> So there's there's this uh, thing called streaming video out there. Uh, it's kind of a new thing, kind of hip, you know. Um, anyway, I signed up for Warner Archive Instant, which is uh, Warner's Warner Brothers has their own streaming service like Netflix or um, Amazon or you know Hulu or any of those things. Um, and I signed up for that a few months ago. Uh, it, was, it was a while ago. Um, because I, you know, I thought it was, I thought they had some cool stuff on there and and what have you, um, and then I realized that I didn't have any time for it, <laughs> so I I canceled it. I was like, I don't, I can't afford to pay this. Um, anyway, long story short, they offered me uh, a deal, and so I signed up again, <laughs> um, and I decided to dive into their their offerings this week as I was transitioning back into being um, on Pacific time, and uh, I just watched a film. Speaking of championing um, films that don't get talked about or aren't part of like the canon or or what have you or the Leonard Maltin stuff, uh, I watched a, a. It's a little film. It's not. It's not going to blow your mind. But this fun little film from 1934 called Death on the Diamond, um, directed by Edward Sedgwick, who uh, was also a co-director, I believe, on Buster Keaton's The Cameraman. Um, and the film is it's super short. It's like 70 minutes long, um, and it's a it's a it's a it's a film about the St. Louis Cardinals. Um, are um, are a hot you know hot team. Um, they're they're climbing the ranks, um, and there are a lot of people that don't want them to succeed. There's uh, 
a mafia guy who has money bet against them for winning the pennant. There, um, you know, there are there are other people without spoiling things um, that don't want the St. Louis Cardinals to win, um, and so they decide whoever they are. It's a whodunit, so I don't want to spoil that. Uh, to start bumping off the St. Louis Cardinals. And so it's a short little, it's like 70 minutes long, um, kind of a goofy movie in the beginning that kind of turns pretty dark when uh, all of the St. Louis Cardinals start getting assassinated. <laughs> um, and, it, and it's fun. It's got, it's got an interesting cast uh, headed by Robert Young. Um, Nat Pendleton's in it. I've mentioned him on the show before. Sure. Um, he's been in a couple movies we've, we've talked about, including some Marx Brothers stuff. And there are also some other people that were in some Marx Brothers films that crop up here. Um, and it's just a fun little film that, you know, you can pop in in an afternoon, have a little, you know, fun with it. And um, it's one that I never heard of uh, until it was on this Warner archive thing. So, um I don't know how, the availability of it, but I'm sure Scarecrow has it, and there are ways of checking it out, and it's fun. Are there any? Seen, uh, are there any actual baseball players in it? There are not, um, mm. actually. Uh, well, uh, there. Well, okay. There's uh, w- one of the things I liked about this movie is um, its integration of um, actual baseball scenes, even though. There's implausible hits that lead to, you know, inside the park home runs uh, <laughs> that happen in the movie. Um, but but the movie actually has a really interesting use of um, rear projection. It uses okay. it a lot. There's a really cool shot of from the pitcher's mound looking towards home plate and a, a character will be, you know, stepping into the batter's box. And behind them will be rear projection of the crowd from an actual baseball game. And it looks really, really cool. And they, and they use rear projection a number of times. There's a, there's a scene in a car with rear projection that's used really well. Um, and so the only actual baseball players you'll see are, you know, in this kind of stock footage that's used for, you know, baseball action, as it were. Does, does um, it look better than, than the uh, Gary Cooper baseball that we saw in, uh, in Pride of the Yankees? It does, actually. I think it does look a little bit better than Pride of the Yankees. Um, right on. Yeah, so I like this a little bit more than that um, because it's it's not sappy in any way. Um, it's just like, oh, who's killing the St. Louis Cardinals? <laughs> uh, which is fun. And and I should I should note one of the reasons I liked it so much is I did not guess who the killer was. So I was surprised when I when it happened. So um, it's a fun little movie. So yeah, I, I I really I love Warner Archive. I love Warner Archive Instant in in theory. I, I can't subscribe to it because I, I simply I don't have the time to watch. Well, that's it. my that was my issue. I mean, it's like I I love that it is out there, and I hope that it is out there until you know for long enough into the future that uh, at 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 some point uh, I will not have my my life dominated by children, and I will right. actually have time to to sign up for it and and watch the movies on it. But but right now I can I can barely watch the movies that that I have. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so many options nowadays, and this is you know, not to go into the death of the video store thing again. You know, this is the reason Scarecrow's pushed into these kind of things, and um, you know, with the you've got your Amazons, you got your Netflixes, you got you got to pick and choose, you got to decide what's important. Frankly, you know? I I would be much happier if I would I would trade all of the streaming services, everything to have. Everything that's on streaming available at at Scarecrow, so that I could just you know go and rent movies every week. Right. 
and the you know the problem that even even as great as Scarecrow is, they don't have everything, and they don't have it like right away. Right. I mean, they, so. yeah, there there are pros and cons to everything, and you know, I'm not trying to. Um, I'm not trying to say one system is better than another. Like, I mean, I, for example, you know, this week uh, for Pitch Perfect, um, the the DVD copy I got was scratched. Um, and so I couldn't watch the film, uh, but I was able to, you know, rent it from Amazon for, you know, $2.99 or something to, to get it in time for the show. So, you know, I mean, they're... I, 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 bought, I bought the Blu-ray. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, well, we'll talk about that Blu-ray uh, in just a little bit here on the show, um, but we really should get the, the ball rolling here. Um, well, speaking of, you know, kind of scrappy, idiosyncratic um, films and directors and what have you, like Edward Sedgwick, um, Joe Dante is our person of the week. And um, yeah, he's uh he he didn't have you know like a major role in anything we're talking about this week. He he has a a a co story credit on Rock and Roll High School, and he uh, he plays one of the uh, the police officers in the final scene. He doesn't have any lines, and the the story goes that on on the like the last day of shooting, uh, the director uh, Alan Arkush had to be hospitalized for exhaustion. And so Joe Dante took over shooting the last like you know three setups, right, or whatever of the, of the the film, not uh, the actual not the finale of the film, just the last three things that they were shooting. So that uh, that is enough to give us an excuse to talk about Joe Dante. I think that's plenty. Yeah. I think that's absolutely plenty to talk about Joe Dante. Um, Joe Dante as as evidenced by the, by his, you know, uh, work on a film like rock and roll high school, um, started out in the Corman school, uh, just like, you know, Jonathan Demi did, uh, Martin Scorsese, you know, uh, James Cameron, James Cameron, the list goes on and on of people that, you know, started out learning the tricks of the trade, um, doing these low budget kind of B movies, um, for Corman. Um, and, uh, the, you know, two years or, um, Sorry, excuse me. Uh, the same or the year before, <laughs> bleh, the year before Rock and Roll High School came out, uh, Joe Dante had a Corman film, Piranha, um, <laughs> that was uh, clearly a cash in on the Jaws phenomenon, um, Steven Spielberg's film. And uh, I just caught up with Piranha earlier this year, and I love Piranha. It's like so much fun. Have you seen Piranha? I have not. Oh, God, Sean. It is great. Uh, it is so much fun. Uh, written by John Sayles, um, who also came through the Corman School. I mean, all, it's amazing to look at Corman and be like, look at all of this talent, you know, um, that people that we're still talking about today, uh, 30 years later, that, that worked, you know, uh, uh, with Roger Corman. Um, but anyway, long, so Piranha got, uh, you know, Dante a gig directing Gremlins. Because uh, Steven Spielberg, everybody wanted Steven Spielberg to sue for Piranha uh, because it was a ripoff of Jaws. And Steven Spielberg saw Piranha and was like, wait, this movie is actually really awesome. <laughs> Let me get this guy to direct this movie Gremlins that I'm making. Um, well, he, he did a, a segment of the Twilight Zone movie that, that Spielberg produced before, before Gremlins, didn't he? He did, yeah. Um, 
and he, and he did the howling before, you know. But um, so Joe Dante, let's let's talk about Joe Dante's kind of aesthetic. He comes from this Corman school. He, to me, of all those people that kind of went on to other things, he is clearly the one that's most enamored with B movie aesthetics and and um, kind of goofy fly by the seat of your pants filmmaking. Um, yeah, the the thing that, that his first credit on on IMDb uh, from long before uh, he started actually making movies uh, is something called the movie orgy, which I think I think he did when he was in in college, and it's basically just like this uh, four hour editing. No, it's longer than that. Or it's like eight seven. hour, seven yeah. whatever. Uh, incredibly long editing together of archival footage of like newsreels and commercials and, and just all kinds of, of, of crazy shit that he'd found and spliced together and would show on like college campuses. So it's, it's, it's very much a, a celebration of like the weird and the ephemeral in the culture of the fifties and sixties. Which the grand illusion in Seattle, uh, I believe in the last year screened, I don't think they screened the full cut of the movie orgy, but they did screen it. And I'm sad. I did not get a chance to see that. <laughs> yeah. I, I've, I've never seen it. I, w- I would love to. Um, but that, that kind of thing, you see it in, in all of Joe Dante's films. There's, there's Absolutely. always just really, you know, even in like his most mainstream movies, there are little tiny bits of weirdness that, that he throws in and it's it's really fun yeah joe dante's movies are they're like rock and roll high school they're so much goddamn fun um you you know thinking of something like gremlins 2 the new batch which is just insanity i mean it's like 90 minutes of sheer utter anarchy and uh, and it, but for some reason, you know, you see movies that are that kind of try to throw everything at the at the screen, um, and it just none of it works. With Joe Dante, there's I don't know if it's just his enthusiasm. Uh, he's you know he's an intelligent guy. He knows a lot about movies. He I think he's got a really great, interesting taste. Uh, maybe that's what holds it together. But something like Gremlins to the New Batch could have been such a disaster, and instead it is like one of the most joyous movie going experiences you can possibly imagine. And it includes actually speaking of. Uh, a cameo from Leonard Maltin, um, who gets uh, his comeuppance from the Gremlins <laughs> in that movie. Yeah, uh, it's it's he's he's satirical without being mean spirited, which is which is incredibly difficult to to do. Yes, uh, that's a, that's a great way of putting it. And you know, Joe Dante, I didn't I didn't know Joe Dante's name when I was when I was a kid in the eighties, but I knew his movies: uh, Gremlins, Explorers, Inner Space. Uh, Gremlins 2, The Burbs. These were all movies that I saw as a kid and all movies that, that I loved. Like I, I remember seeing Explorers with, uh, with my sister when I was nine and she was seven. And we had like the best time the two of us ever had together watching <laughs> this movie where, where River Phoenix and Ethan Hawke build a spaceship and meet aliens and then have a dance party. Yeah, and I I don't think I've seen it since then. Like since my age has become double digit, but I, you know, I loved it then, and I, I did recently. Uh, I think it was when uh, when Henry was born a year and a half ago. We kind of did like an informal Joe Dante marathon. We watched The Burbs. We watched the two Gremlins movies. Uh, I watched Matinee and uh, and the whole, and I think Looney Tunes back in action. 
and every single one of them I, I adored. Yeah, I, I would like to single out, and I think I did it before in a previous episode, Matinee. Um, I, I, I think Gremlins is, is his best movie. Um, I think it's his most perfect film. Um, but I love every Joe Dante movie I've seen. Um, but Matinee has a really special place in my heart. Um, I think and, Matinee might be like the most Joe Dante, Joe Dante movie. It is, there's a, there's a shot in that movie, and I, I may have mentioned this before on the show, and I apologize if I have, but there's a scene very briefly where uh, John Goodman's character is, is talking about the power of movies. Um, and he's a huckster, you know, he's, he's a, uh, you know, William Castle type guy and he, he's got these schlocky movies, but he talks about the transformative power of cinema and it's, it's paired, it's a voiceover with Joe Dante's camera moving, um, through a movie theater, like going through the front door, past the ticket booth, up the stairs, you know, into a balcony. And it is the most beautiful love letter to movies that I can think of. I mean, it is just so genuine and heartfelt. Um, but done by a guy who's a total schlock. Like, I'm not Joe Dante, but the character that's saying it. And that's what makes it so great, you know? It's not full of itself. It's not trying to be poetic. It's just, it's honest. And and, and I think Joe Dante's love for movies um, and pop culture, you know, um, just comes through in in his movies like that. I think it's he's just really great. Um, I should see. So the hole is good because I I was spying that on IMDb and I I haven't seen um, the more recent Joe Dante stuff. But. The the hole is good. I haven't seen the the 3D version. I don't know if it if it ever really got much of a, a release in theaters. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Avatar was like taking up all of the 3D screens at the time or something. I I can't exactly remember. Uh, I saw it on. Netflix or or Amazon or something. I rented it and uh, yeah, it's good. It's a it's a little uh, uh, kind of a, a pre adolescent horror movie about a hole. Awesome. It's good. It's good <laughs> stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well. Uh, yeah. I salute Joe Dante. I really want to get to the rest of his, the the blind spots in his filmography um, before the end of the year. Um, he has a new one coming out called Burying the X that um, I haven't heard much about. And I, I heard rumor that he was teaming up with Simon Pegg on something coming up, which I think is uh, two, uh, you know, two worldviews that would go perfectly together. So um, hopefully that gets made as well. But uh, yeah, I salute you, Joe Dante. You were totally awesome. Yes. <laughs> uh, speaking of totally awesome, let's talk about our cinema central for this week, um, the modern musical. Um, and what we mean by modern musical is uh, we don't want to th- throw in, um, you know, your classic Astaire Rogers type stuff or you're singing in the rains um, or your movies that were, you know, made in the last 30 years that harken back to a different era. Um, Pennies from Heaven, which would have been my obvious choice for something like that. Um, or we, All That Jazz. Or All or, That Jazz. Or yeah. uh, uh, Chicago, which uh, neither which of us would pick. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we, but uh, yeah, more, more in the, the kind of rock and roll era. Yeah, and uh, it's tempting for me to pick something, to pick Rock and Roll High School, because as we mentioned in our discussion, it it is perfect, and it captures... The, that would be I a really they, boring the, choice, though, because we already talked about that. 
Well, I'm not going to pick it. I'm just saying good. that is if you want to look to an example of what we're trying to get at, Rock and Roll High School is the perfect example of that. Well, Pitch so, Perfect is the perfect example of that, but I'm not picking that either. Thank God. Uh, what did you pick, Sean? Uh, I picked uh, I, uh, another movie that I'm pretty sure you would hate called Girl Walk All Day. Have you seen this film? I have not seen Girl Walk All Day, no. Are you familiar with Girl Talk? Oh, we, you, you've picked this before. Have I? You have, because I had never heard of it, and then, you t- and then you picked it, and then I have a feeling that the movie that I've picked for this, I have picked for something as well. <laughs> well, that's okay. Nobody listens to this anyway. <laughs> well, why don't you describe this movie that I've never heard of that I heard of before on the show? Uh, it's about a girl. <laughs> And uh, she's in a ballet class and she's bored. And so she takes off uh, dancing and she goes all through New York City, uh, spreading dance wherever she goes. That and, sounds really interesting. And the, the entire movie is, is the, the Girl Talk album uh, all day. And Girl Talk is a guy who does mashups of all kinds of different music, all kind of smooshed together to make something that's that's not it's not the original it's not entirely something new it's just fun (laughs) we'll talk about the fun of a mashup uh, later on in the show uh my pick uh for modern or you know contemporary musical thing uh and i know i've talked about this on the show i don't know if i was a cinema essential or not but uh 2005's linda 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 um Mm which is a Japanese film uh, about four high school girls that start a rock band to perform at a cultural festival at their school. Was, um, what, it, I think it was on your top 10 list last year, wasn't it? I don't know. Maybe. It, yeah. I really like this movie. I, I'll, I'll just, I'll say that. Uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's a, it's a, I, and I, and, See, all of the things I said before are coming back to me now. Uh, But it really captures what it's like to be in a band, particularly in high school, so, so well, um, even if it's a, you know, world away. And um, the performances are great. The music is, is, you know, we were talking about, can you enjoy something if you don't like the music in a film? Uh, Luckily, I love the music in this. um, And it's just infectious. And it's, it's just, it's a beautiful little film. And I think everybody should see Linda, Linda, Linda. Yeah, it's one that I I still need to see. I, I've seen much praise from it, not just from you over and over again. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, it's it's I just I just haven't gotten to it yet. But but I should. Yeah, it moves at its own pace. It's 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 a lot slower pace than something like Rock and Roll High School, and it doesn't have the uh... Uh, anything is slower paced than Rock and Roll High School. <laughs> That's true. Um, yeah, it, it it's it's made up more of small moments than big moments, but um, they are moments that stick, um, and I and I think it's a really great film. So, without further ado, I think it's time we tackle this, uh, you know, elephant in the room, <laughs> and let's hear a clip from our second film we'll be discussing this week, uh, Pitch Perfect. Would you pick a song for us, please? Bruno Mars, just the way you are. Okay. Um, Chloe, are you okay to take the lead? Yeah. <clears throat> <laughs> 
on her trying She's so beautiful And I tell her every day uh, uh, I was thinking about her Thinking about me Thinking about us Her she be Oh my It's only just a dream She don't see what I see But every time she asks me to do when I see so you travel back down that road and she come back, no one knows I feel All right, so Pitch Perfect uh, came out in 2012, and it stars Anna Kendrick as a incoming freshman at a, a fictional university who does not want to be going to college. She wants to go to Los Angeles and pursue her dreams as a DJ. She wants to be a producer. She wants to, and, and she does. Uh, she makes little mashups in her spare time. But her father, who's a professor, is making her go to college, and she's, you know, very annoyed at this, and she doesn't like her dad because he got divorced. And then not only does he make her go to college, he forces her to try and, like, get along with other people and be social. So on a whim, she auditions for the school uh, female a cappella group and kind of gets sucked into this weird subculture of competitive acapella singing, which uh, everyone by 2012 when this film came out knows from Glee, but is is still just a weirdly unique kind of world unto itself, full of people who take competitive singing and dancing very, very seriously, while at the same time acknowledging the, the inherent geeky uncoolness of it all. And the film walks this 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 fine line between uh, kind of ridiculing this world and celebrating the kind of the kind of personal growth that the Anna Kendrick character experiences through her year in the organization. In other words, it's a coming of age college movie that's basically just every sports movie cliche uh, transposed onto the world of competitive singing. And it's got a, a, a terrific supporting cast, uh, most uh, most notably led by uh, improvisations by Rebel Wilson, Elizabeth Banks, and and John Michael Higgins, kind of cracking wise with lots of of weird non sequitur jokes, and it's got. Uh, an Asian woman who talks really quietly about how she sets fires to feel joy and then does a, a snow angel in a big pile of vomit. So it's great, and I love it, and I've seen it three times in the last three months, and I might watch it again tonight. Oh, my God. And What is wrong with you? I, I know that you don't like this movie because you only gave it two stars on Letterboxd, which you know, I, I don't. That's kind of a, a middling review for you. It's it's a don't like, but it's not. And you absolutely hated it. It's not a Chicago style star rating from you. 
but I don't know why you didn't like it because you didn't say anything about that on Letterboxd. So I am, I am anxious to learn what your reasons are for not adoring this movie. <laughs> well, they are legion. So get ready, buddy. <laughs> Have you gone to the bathroom? Um, yeah, you're right. I don't hate Pitch Perfect like I hate some of the the choicer films from that we've discussed in previous episodes, like uh, the aforementioned Chicago or Steven Soderbergh's Solaris. Um, there, there are fleeting moments here and things that I I can kind of get behind, um, but on the whole, I I don't understand the appeal of this movie. Like I, I really, honestly. I tried to give it a fair shake and I, I, the movie didn't meet me halfway. I don't understand. Like you set it up and you said, you said all those things. And I wanted to just say, why is any of that good? <laughs> because, okay, here, let me, let me unpack my baggage here. Um, okay. I have three questions for you to start off. One, uh, why would commentators for, um, you know, acapella um, contests, um, the aforementioned Elizabeth Banks and John Michael Higgins. Um, why would they talk over the performances? Um, that seems weird to me, um, which they do throughout um, until the end. They shut up during the finale. But um, I, I was like, this doesn't make any sense. Why are, why are they talking over this performance? Uh, you're, you're, if it was a dance performance, maybe you would say something, but you're, you're, the performance is, is, is an audio thing. Why would you talk over that? That's, that's really annoying. Uh, second question, what idiot uh, would try and impress a woman by showing her the very end of a movie um, and just the very end of a movie, um, which is done with The Breakfast Club here? And I'm going to get back to The Breakfast Club in a little bit. Uh, and my third question, and probably the most important, who in their right mind would make a mashup of the Proclaimers song, I Would Walk 500 Miles, when we all know that song is perfect and should not be tampered with in any fashion, um, especially for some sort of middling um, grading, you know, uh, flash in the pan version of it. Those are my three questions I posed to you at the beginning of our discussion of Pitch Perfect, Sean. Would you like to uh, answer them for me? Yeah, sure. I, I can do okay. that. The, the, okay. the answer to your first question is, is who cares? Uh, me? It's, because... it's awesome. No, it's not. Because it's one... really funny. Like no, who, who, funny who in their right mind would air a, a collegiate competitive singing competition on television? Personally, I like to think that they're not actually on TV at all. They're just two old former competitive singers hanging out at the college doing like a little routine amongst themselves with no TV cameras. Yeah. Well, I actually pictured it as like a, on the radio or something like that. Um, but if, if they, if what they were saying was in any way funny, um, then maybe, but it's just a bunch of like snide remarks between the two of them. And I've seen John Michael Higgins do this, this stuff in the Christopher Guest kind of movies um, I feel like he's, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I, I feel like he's been a commentator in one of those as well. Um, yeah, the uh, the kind of uh, weird commentator thing is is a, a, really is, is a comedy trope. We saw it in uh, in Dodgeball with Jason Bateman, where it, which is terrific. Uh, but uh, 
you know, I, I, I can't convince you that it's funny if you don't think it's funny. Well, I know. And, that, and we're going to get to, you know, there, there are some of my arguments against this movie that are inarguable because um, like we were talking about earlier, um, we'll, we'll get into it. We'll get into yeah. it. <laughs> uh, as to your second two questions, uh, my answer is just a, an 18 year old. Yeah, but like okay. he's he's an eighteen year old. He thinks he thinks that the Breakfast Club and and Rocky are are two of the the five best scored movies of all time. I mean, he's not a, a smart, sophisticated kid, and and as is uh, uh, Anna Kendrick's character. Like, I I would not expect her mashups to be great. I would expect them to be like the work of a kid. Okay, see, I feel like. <laughs> I feel like that's kind of uh, I don't know. You're you're kind of looking at it from a distance that I don't think is is fair to the movie itself personally because you're supposed to at least get behind these people and um, well, there's only uh, that, to, to that, be clear, that, there there is only one person. Like all all of the supporting cast are basically types. And they're they're tropes and they're and they're and they're funny if you think they're funny. Otherwise, they're just irritating. Uh, Anna Kendrick is really the only character on film, and it's really mostly about her. There there is to some extent with the uh, the leader of the group. There is some uh, you know attempt at psychology there, but all of the rest of the characters are are basically just just there for you know to to fill out the plot. Right. Okay. Um... Uh, yet another problem with this movie um but the character of jesse the 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 male lead if you will the he's in the rival acapella group um and, and he's he, the one he, he has a crush on on anna kendrick which she does not reciprocate right and okay so what are we supposed to get we're not supposed to get out of that scene of him showing her the breakfast club we're not supposed to get Oh, he's a stupid eighteen-year-old. Like that—that that moment is in the movie is actually really pivotal for what happens later in the film, um, to the film's detriment, in my opinion. Um, well, I think uh, we're what we're supposed to get is that he really likes the Breakfast Club. Right. Okay. Well. Okay. Let's dig into that now. Okay. Can we? Um, sure. Okay. Um, I was. I thought about this probably the most after watching this movie, and I was wondering why the movie's use of the breakfast club as a um, kind of payoff, emotional payoff um, for the movie was, was getting to me because at first it, it irked me. And then, and I was like, but why does this irk me when something like there's a, a similar thing happens in hot fuzz, Edgar Wright's film, which is a, the whole movie is an homage and, and a loving tribute to, you know, ridiculous action movies like the Michael Bay school. Um, and in that movie early on, they set up, they show in fact um, a clip from a film we previously discussed on the show point break. Um, and it's the shot of Keanu Reeves not being able to shoot, at um, Patrick Swayze and instead turning in anger and firing his gun into the air. So we see that in Hot Fuzz and that comes back around at the end of the movie as uh, an emotional payoff for one of the characters um, where they do the same thing. And why I ask myself, 
why does it work so well in a movie like Hot Fuzz? And why does it fall flat and actually make me turn against the movie like Pitch Perfect? And I was really debating this. And I, and I think what it is, one, is I think in Hot Fuzz, the affection is, is palpable for something like Point Break. And it informs everything um, in the movie, in the world of the characters. And it's, mo and it's, and it's better integrated into the film. In something like Pitch Perfect, it feels lazy. Uh, it feels like it's it's kind of riding the goodwill of a film that people love um, for a variety of reasons, and it and using that, and then riding the coattails of that for the film's own purposes. Um, yeah, I, I could not disagree more. I think. Oh my uh, gosh. <laughs> I think. I think. I think. A. I, th I think it's a mistake to see the the Breakfast Club scenes as like a Rosetta Stone to to unlocking the mysteries of Pitch Perfect. Like I, I don't think it as as that it is as related to the 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 structure and theme of the film as uh, a movie like Point Break it, or you know, Bad Boys. Uh, or Bad Boys Two is to is to Hot Fuzz. I don't think they have that kind of relation. Uh, I think but... I wait. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I think uh, that instead it is it is a signifier of a certain type of character. And there are there are kids out there. There are eighteen year old kids out there who love The Breakfast Club. And I am I am not one of them. I was not one of them when I was eighteen. I wasn't one of them when I was ten. And The Breakfast Club came out. It's uh, not one of my favorite films. But That's... but it is you know true to a certain kind of character that does see the world through the lens of the Breakfast Club, and that's what they use, you know, to kind of define the world as they see it. And that's a very eighteen-year-old thing to do, and that that to me, you know, says something true about that character. And I think it is it is interesting in the way the Breakfast Club works, which is which is five uh, stereotypical. Uh, high school movie character types who are trapped in a room and forced to bond and they learn that they they all actually have much more in common than they think they do that there's like a a, a shared kind of fear uh, amongst them regardless of the social situation that they find themselves and and pitch perfect doesn't have any, nearly that kind of depth and i don't think it's really trying for that kind of depth but it is interesting to me that that the characters in it are particular types. You have you have Rebel Wilson as as the the uh, fat girl. You have the Asian girl. You have the slutty girl. You have the 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 black lesbian girl. And a, every one of those characters kind of subverts what your initial image of them are going to be. And it's not that they they have like a shared fear like you get in the Breakfast Club. It's that they have a shared weirdness. They they are all a little crazy. And I think I think that is what you know. Pitch Perfect is celebrating in the way that that the Breakfast Club is celebrating, like the the togetherness you get from you know sharing that that you know common human neuroses that you have. Well, let's see. Unfortunately, this this so-called weirdness um, to me was way too predictable and safe. Um, vomit accepted. Uh, this movie was and uh, was was so obvious um like the the soft-spoken asian you know girl in the film um you know exactly what's gonna you know how that's gonna pay off the fact that she mumbles everything and no one can understand her you know how it's gonna pay off at the end of this thing um with her was, with her like being a, a beatbox maestro 
Absolutely. You knew she was going to come out with some flamboyant type of singing thing. I mean, I didn't, I would, yeah, I, you know, I didn't pinpoint and say it's going to be a beatboxing, but it's clear that the one thing that defines that character, which is the fact that she talks really, really quietly, is then in the, you know, big joyous finale is going to come out and she's going to, you know, something, you know, she's going to be really vocal, which she is at that point. Um, unfortunately, the movie is riddled with these kind of cliches that I, I don't know. Like, I guess you can embrace them because I don't know. I don't know why you can embrace them. I really can't. Um, whereas I just find it, you know, there's a scene where Anna Kendrick early in the film is talking to Jesse. Um, and by the way, this is an aside absolutely zero chemistry between the two characters absolutely none i didn't see a spark of anything in them and so when she finally kisses him after doing the song from uh, the breakfast club um is it's just it makes me want to makes me want to vomit myself but he, anyway he, he's he's a very bland he's mus incredibly musical bland. musical male lead like he that that actor you know seems nice enough but he's not he's not really a, like a compelling romantic presence which you know, as as I said in in Rock and Roll High School, is 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 very typical for musicals that you'll have a, just a very boring male lead. Right, but this guy, this guy is more involved, um, and his 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 story is kind of it, 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 the payoff of his story is kind of I think more in, important to this movie than um, you know good old blondie Jimmy two times and the other one um, but what was I saying where was I going with oh so earlier in the film Anna Kendrick is talking to him about movies and she's like oh I don't care for movies I, I never watch the end um, they're always a letdown blah 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 um, and and you think I mean, maybe maybe this was like working on like multiple levels. Maybe this is working on a level more than I expected. Um, she she talks about how the movie the the ending of a movie is always let down. And it's always cliche, and all the things that happen are cliche. So I thought something totally insane was going to happen at the end of this movie, but instead it plays exactly like it's supposed to. Right. There's it. It's uh, you know, by the by the end of the film, she she watches The Breakfast Club. And even though she knows exactly how it's going to end, she's already seen the ending of it. She's still affected by it. And, and what she's learned is that, you know, it doesn't really matter. But are you affected by the end of this movie? I mean, that's my problem is that by the time this movie gets to its end, it is, it is so riddled with cliches. Um, it, it's, it's, it, it, it functions like a pop song. And, and pop songs are built around cliches. Yeah, but, the, but 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 you still enjoy them. Like, there's nothing. I you know I I I had never seen Rock and Roll High School. I didn't know anything about Rock and Roll High School. I could tell you from the first frame of Rock and Roll High School that they're going to end up in blowing up the school, but I didn't care. But did you know that there was going to be a giant rat that went to a, or a mouse that goes to a rock show and is, is hanging out? Um, the thing. The well, yeah. Similarly, I didn't know that there would be a thing called mermaid dancing. Um, I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, there are, there I'm, I'm are, sorry, I, just, I, 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 I don't really, I don't really care about, you know, whether or not a, a, a film is, is predictable enough if I'm enjoying it. And I, I enjoyed pretty much every minute of, of Pitch Perfect. See, I don't understand that. I mean, I like, okay, the two fundamental issues, and this is, this is where this is going to get really predictable ourselves. Um, unfortunately, 
I don't find this movie funny in the slightest. I mean, I really didn't. I didn't find anything Rebel Wilson said um, funny. It was. It was. Um, it was just kind of snarky and and I'm sorry I hate to keep saying obvious but and then the other thing is I cannot stand the music in this movie I I like we talked about it with Rock and Roll High School and I think you can like Rock and Roll High School without liking the Ramones and and that kind of music I think you can I think there's an infectious nature to Riff Randall's character um, I think the absurdity of some of the things that happen in that movie are really interesting this movie i think the music is a roadblock um and because i think did you like did you like any of the music or just as is it like the mashup thing that you have a problem with or like the the fact that they like sing a a a bruno mars song or uh i well first of all i i don't as a as a as a you know, I don't have a general rule that I hate contemporary pop music. Um, I really like a lot of Britney's recent singles, uh, till the world ends, I think is fantastic. Um, toxic is good. Um, there are songs that I do not like that peer, uh, pop up in this movie that I, that I dislike from, um, personal experience. And, uh, Miley Cyrus's party in the USA is a song that I, dislike so much i don't even like the weird al parody of that song um and so when they all sing it as some sort of bonding song in their camper van um it's just not going to resonate with me because of that song i just find very uh, annoying um songs that i do like that crop up in this movie like the aforementioned proclaimers song um i i felt that was i i think someone could technically cover the proclaimers and it could be fine um i i didn't get behind the mashups um and then, and I've heard some mashup type of stuff. You know, there's a there's stuff out there where people like graft, uh, you know, Beatles songs to like Wu Tang verses or something like that. And you well, know, there's gets, the 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 Gray album with uh, right the Jay Z and the Beatles and right. Yeah. There's stuff like that which is kind of interesting. There's the you know, but that, I do find that stuff gets kind of tired after a while. It's the novelty wears off. Um, you know, I. The Bruno Mars song, which is that's the one they do in the pool, right? When yeah, it's, it matches up Bruno Mars's "Just the Way You Are" with uh, Nelly's uh, "Just a Dream." Right, that one. The performance of that one is probably that was pretty good. I'll give you that. The problem with that scene with me, <laughs> uh, because I have to have a problem with every scene in Pitch Perfect, um, is the fact that that scene is is supposed to be them trying out this new. You know, Anna Kendrick's been pushing for them to do these mashups or do these do something other than Ace of Base. Um, I saw the sign, which is a song, another song I like that I think is the performance of it here. I, I think is partially intentionally supposed to be kind of bland because there's a reason there's not supposed to be. Oh, it's, you know, it's most succeeding. definitely intentional. Yeah. So that there's there, there's that. But anyway, the scene of Bruno Mars is them supposed to be finding their footing with this this mashup version thing. And I think this is the crux with me and the music in this movie is it's too pitch perfect. Like they, it doesn't like there are a couple of minor moments. It shows them practicing where things are a little off for a second, but it's really, it, it's very mannered offness. Um, And I, I will be the first to admit that I like music that is a little rough around the edges. Um, But that scene 
is them supposed to be trying out this new thing that they've never done before, never done it before. They've never done two songs together at once. It's, it's just never happened. And they do it from the, the minute they start. It's perfect. I mean, it is flawless. Every person knows exactly what little bump, a bump they're going to do. Um, all, it's like perfectly synchronized. Um, there's not a stumble well, along the way. Well, Mike, it's it's a musical. I mean, you don't uh, you don't watch the, uh, but the you don't watch Seven Brides for Seven Brothers and say, how do the Seven Brothers all know the same steps to the bar? No, dance? but that, but that's it. That's a different that's a different thing because this movie hinges on them as a group coming together to do this performance, and you would think that it would show some of the push and pull. Um, not just between the personalities of the characters, but also them trying to find their... F I think that would be more dramatically um, gratifying to see them stumble and then succeed instead of them just like coming out of the gates being perfect with their... Well, I think, I, think you, I think you do see that in the, uh, the riff-off scene, where, uh, uh, which is one of the few scenes in the film that actually contains songs that I knew, uh, when, <laughs> when Anna Kendrick starts singing uh, uh, No Diggity. And and she goes up there and she's and she's doing the verse and and is kind of awkwardly looking around as nobody is is helping and joining in and then the the group kind of tentatively comes together and and it builds to where they actually are singing as as a unit for the first time. See, I, I if if that was there, it was too few and far between for me. I, I'm I mean, I mean it's, it's it's part of the conceit of the film that that everyone knows all the lyrics to these songs, which you know I you know is not realistic i think you know if somebody had like a lyric sheet there oh this is these are the bruno mars lyrics so you can you know well but I, you know I, i'm not trying to i'm really not trying to be mr nitpicker here um it's just there are certain things that i can suspend disbelief for with a movie um there are a lot of things i can watch the craziest stuff um but <laughs> the the world that this movie's trying to depict, I feel like is it's it's given a disservice by the fact that everybody is so um, immaculate in their presentation. Um, unfortunately, see, so, I, th I think that's just a, I think that's just a conceit of the of the musical numbers. I think the realism in the film doesn't come from from the singing. I think it comes in in the the kind of attitude and the depiction of. You know, as I, I talked about rock and roll high school as, as indicative of of its generational moment of this this time in the 1970s and this and this you know kind of in between generation of kids, and I think that Pitch Perfect is is similarly indicative of its generation, um, in in the way that these these you know characters interact and uh, what was truest to me, what was what's most real about the film to me is is just the the world of a subculture of a, a a strangely competitive subculture about something that nobody cares about and is incredibly nerdy but they take it so seriously while knowing that it's so silly to take it so seriously and you know i that was my experience of college as well yeah i, I mean it, it wasn't competitive singing but it was just as <laughs> dorky if not more so so well yeah i mean we live in our little subsets now of you know finding our our niche audience or whatever yeah, um, and and i and i think that the anna kendrick's you know kind of journey kind of recognizing you know her her shared you know humanity with with other people and 
you know, so so much about this, you know, this cultural moment is is isolating and takes place in our own world with you know headphones on and listening to our own music and not interacting with anyone else. Like I didn't know any of the music in this in this film except for the stuff from the '90s and the '80s that I grew up listening to on the radio or seeing on MTV. But they don't have the radio on MTV anymore, so I don't know how anyone would ever listen to any songs. I don't know how people know music anymore. <laughs> I really don't. Like I, I I got I got nothing. But it's on. Uh, the the tumblers or something yeah <laughs> but um, but you know just you know kind of seeing this little community form around this incredibly dorky thing and and this girl who is who is sh- so closed off kind of open up to that uh you know it i it it seemed real to me it was real enough i and i guess that's a bridge i can't cross because this there was this movie didn't and maybe I'm just an out of touch old guy. I mean, you know, if if they made an acapella movie about a barbershop quartet, uh, I would probably be like super into it. <laughs> um, but I'm not, you know, I I don't know. I tried to, re- I really did try to relate to this movie, and um, I couldn't get a grip on it. And I I just um, I also I just found it really fake. <laughs> yeah, this 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 third time through watching it, I really kind of keyed in on the uh, on Anna Camp's character. She plays the the leader of the group, and it's it's kind of frustrating when you like want the plot to go forward. Just how um, how annoying un, 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 how annoying she is, and how unwilling she is to entertain any kind of of yeah. uh, of of change, anything new, any suggestion from anyone else. And it's it, it's you know. If I was to get hung up on the realism of the film, that is something that I would get hung up on. Like the only reason she's being this obstinate is because of plot. But there's actually like little bits to her character, and I think psychologically it makes sense. Like she keeps, she drops a couple of these lines about her father. Like her her father says, you know, uh, if you can't stand the heat, get the hell out of Kuwait. Or if at first you don't succeed, pack your bags. Right. And and she's. She is so uptight and she is so tense. She's the the girl who vomits all over the stage in like the intro to the film and ruins her chances. And it's her mission to fix this mistake that she did before. And she absolutely has to do it. And she has to do it by doing, redoing everything the way it was done before, but just without the vomiting. And, you know, that, that kind of, that psychology is, is interesting. Like there's a real psychosis to that, that is, you know, effectively explored in the margins of this film, a large section of which is, is Rebel Wilson doing crazy improv. I think there is, I think there is more depth to Pitch Perfect than you're, than you're seeing. And I, you know, I, like I said, I, I don't know any of the music. I recognize No Diggity. I know Ace of Base. Uh, the ladies from the 80s mashup, I, I knew all of those. But all of the, like, the contemporary music, none of it I had heard before. Uh, I'm not a particular fan of modern pop music. I'm not against it. I just I don't know it at all. And, I mean, there's, and there's, some, there's, some of the songs I really liked. I, I really like the, the Bruno Mars Nelly mashup. I think that's a, a great moment in the film. Uh, I think that the, the final mashup, like the big uh, final number is pretty bad, and that's like where where I give this movie only uh, four and a half stars on Letterbox is just because that that one big mashup that should be the best song in the film is just not very good. 
Uh, do you think that's because that's the only mashup you know one of the songs to? Uh, no, I just it, it it just seems awkward. Like they're they're piling so many songs into it, and they're and they're piling. Uh, songs from like high points from throughout the rest of the film all together, and it just it does it just doesn't come together. The songs don't don't flow very well. I think their dance choreography is is pretty terrible. Uh, it just it just doesn't work in the the kind of you know when a mashup works, you get like this little magical moment where the the two songs intersect in an unpredictable way, and and it doesn't it doesn't do that at the end there like there's there's a little bit i actually really like the the party in the usa scene uh but i didn't know that song at all and i i didn't know it was uh miley cyrus so oh it's a terrible that, that, song that's how ignorant i am of this. <laughs> like I, I i really like that moment and i really like that song when they sing it but i i have yet to hear the miley cyrus version and i have no doubt that it's terrible but but i like that scene uh, well, that's I, I'm happy for you. I really am. I mean, you know, I was I was interested in this movie, you know, because you you watched it back to back earlier this year, and 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 you were giddy about seeing it. And I, I just, you know, I I just um, I just didn't buy into it. I'm I, I don't know how to I don't know how to put it. You know, and I think that that final scene um, is a failure on a lot of fronts, um, as I mentioned before. Um, so are you excited about Pitch Perfect 2, which I apparently is in the works now, Sean? I really am. All right. Well, we won't be discussing that on a future episode of this show. Um, you know, I, I, I know I'm in the minority here. You know, we got into a little bit of a uh, to-do on Letterboxd with Mr. Adam Kempinar um, of Film Spotting, who, you know, nice guy doesn't know a thing about movies i'll tell you that right now um he he was in your corner and uh clearly the guy is delusional so um i don't i don't know if anybody listens to that show out here out there but uh well uh, well i recommend was also like i said i was reading letterboxd reviews today and and there are a lot of you know letterboxd users out there that take your your side uh there was one uh that complains that the movie is trying desperately to be as likable as Sister Act Two and and fails <laughs> utterly. So well, that's a, that's an impossible task. I mean, that you know you shouldn't you shouldn't put something on you know that track because you're just not going to compete. I'm sorry. So what uh, what what did you think of the the hit song to come out of this? The uh, Anna Kendrick's version of the Carter family's "When I'm Gone" with uh, which she's in which she's accompanied by a plastic cup. Um, I, it was the least of one of the least offensive sections. I mean, I, I was blown at like, you're supposed to be like kind of blown away in that moment. Um, and I wasn't, I was kind of, it, it kind of just sat there inertly. That's another thing. This movie shot like a TV show. Um, and like TV shows now, you know, that's, that's, that used to be a really, you know, derogatory thing to say tv shows are a lot more sophisticated visually nowadays um so it's not as bad as it sounds but um i I, there wasn't anything um in the production um side of this that that was interesting either but anyway, i I, um, I definitely agree it's it's uh it's written by kay cannon who is a a writer for 30 rock and and new girl and and the movie is very much in the vein of of those films um i'm not sure the director jason moore i don't know what he's done but it is uh it's it's not uh an offensive 
musical direction as uh, Chicago was or, or Les Miserables. And sure. so uh, by those very low standards of, of directing a mo- modern <laughs> musical, uh, I think he does pretty well. He's a, he's a TV director. He did like Dawson's Creek and One well, Tree Hill go. and stuff. But I, I think, I think it's fine. It's, it's, it's very bland. It's, it's inoffensive. It doesn't get in the way. I, you know, but it's nothing special. I don't know that See, I can tell they, you a single shot of, of this movie. I'm going to take that last sentence you just said. Mm-hmm. And put it on uh, letterboxed. It's very bland, and and just you know, let that be your tagline for the movie because that actually sums up the entire movie for me. It's very bland. Uh, it's inoffensive. I don't remember what you said at this point, but anyway, um, <laughs> it's you know, better. I, I it's think... better directed than Les Misérables in Chicago. <laughs> put put that on the DVD cover. <laughs> there you go. Um, I, I say this every time we we have a discussion like this. Um, I am dying for the day that we watch a movie that I am on the uh, cheerleading end of, and you are the one that is uh, the curmudgeon. Because I, you know, I don't want to hate movies, um, but it seems like that's how it shakes down. You know, so yeah, it it does. It, it every time that I have not liked a movie, you have not liked it as well. The only so. time that we did that, it it flipped. It was uh, when we briefly talked about Spring Breakers. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's our discussion of Pitch Perfect. Um, we're going to listen to a song from that movie, um, and it Sean's choice, since clearly uh, I am inept and cannot decide. What are we going to listen to, Sean? We're we're listening to to When I'm Gone, which is, uh, you know, it's the hit song from the movie, and it's a song that I've been obsessed with for months. Okay. There you go. For the long way round Two bottle whiskey for the way And I sure would like some sweet company And I'm leaving tomorrow What do you say? When I'm Talk, oh, 
you're gonna miss me when I'm gone. All right, thanks, Anna, and your magic cup. Uh, on our next episode, which we think is going to be around Labor Day, we're going to talk about a couple of movies about unions. Uh, Sergei Eisenstein's Strike. And, Exclamation mark. Uh, speaking of the, the Corman factory, uh, John Sayles' Meitwan. That's right. Um, Neither of which I've seen before. Hey, me neither. Um, speaking of the Corman, actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tie in almost everything right now. It's going to blow your mind. Um, if you're in Seattle, um, you should go to the Grand Illusion Theater, which we mentioned earlier, uh, September 6th. Scarecrow Video, which we also mentioned earlier, is going to be presenting a compilation of sorts, kind of like Joe Dante's movie orgy, which we talked about earlier in the show. Um, it's, it's a one-night-only showing of a thing called Rock Out With Your VCR Out, a music video freakout. Um, and what it is is Scarecrow does this like a couple times a year, I think, where they go through their archives and find stuff that's, you know, only been on VHS, you know, um, no one's seen it in like 15, 20 years. And they make these compilations of just the most insane stuff you can imagine. And so the little thing on the grand illusions website says um featuring no hit wonders big hair breakdancing instructions ted nugent and much more so i don't know what else you could possibly expect out of this but it's it sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun and it ties in with our musical theme this week so uh go check that out okay uh if uh yeah i was i was actually going to talk about something in the grand illusion so i'm going to uh to pick something else and it is uh ongoing right now at the museum of the moving image in new york it is a uh a retrospective on patrick lung kong who was a hong kong director from the 60s and 70s uh he's most known for for directing the original version of uh or the film that inspired John Woo's A Better Tomorrow, uh, the story of the discharged prisoner, uh, but that played last week. Uh, but this weekend, the, uh, the series concludes with uh, four more of his films, uh, Yesterday, Today, Tomorrow, The Window, uh, Pei Shi, and Mitra. And I don't know anything about any of them, but if I was in New York, I would be going to see those movies. <laughs> so you probably should too. That's right. Take Sean's word for it. Yeah. Um, you can find out more about Sean's words um, by <laughs> following us on Twitter at uh, Geo Sanders Show. You can also um, email us at the George Sanders Show dot or at gmail.com, excuse me. And we have a website uh, which will have updated calendars, I promise, one of these days. Um, the George Sanders Show dot blogspot.com. And yeah, I guess uh, uh, coming up, we are going to do the thing that we did last year around Labor Day, around the beginning of September, which was we did our uh, our top 10 movies of all time, um, sort of. Uh, we're going to do a new version of that. We're going to add 10 more films to the top 10 films of all time lists that we did. So look for that episode coming up in September. And if you have uh, a top 10 list of your own, uh, send it to us. Let us know. If, Look us uh, up. Yeah, if you if you come up with something good, maybe we will mention it on the air. Maybe Mike will just copy your list and uh, go from there, <laughs> and not give you credit for it. Yeah. Uh, so do it. Yeah, I know. Uh, well, I know. I know that Pitch Perfect is going to be on my list. Just just to just to piss Mike times. off. <laughs> ten, just one through ten, baby. <laughs> uh, 
Well, to cleanse our palate from all this pitch-perfect nonsense, uh, we are going to listen to a cover now of the Ramones. Uh, this is Sonic Youth live in 1987, I believe. Um, so enjoy that. We'll see you next time. Baseball bat. 